Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. As you're turning to Zechariah, I want to thank all of you who notified us that you are watching us from California, Mississippi, Louisiana, Wisconsin, New York. I want to thank in all the other places. Florida, thank you for tuning in. Zechariah chapter 4, reading from the New American Standard Version, beginning at verse 1. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand and all the gold with this bowl on top of it. And his seven lamps on his with each seven spouts belonging to each one of the lamps which are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the other left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And he said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, for Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. He will bring forth the top stone with his shouts of grace, grace to it. I want to preach this morning. I want to tag it with the title, We're Not Done Yet. We're Not Done Yet. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this hour. Thank you for this sacred appointment. Thank you, Lord God, for the chance to, to be alive, Lord God, and know, and know that you're the giver of my life. Lord, I pray as always you would anoint me at this strategic hour that I may preach your word with power. And God, you may reach through these airways, reach through YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter, reach through, Lord God, to a heart that right now needs to know that you are with them, needs to know that they're not done yet. We thank you, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, I do pray. Amen, amen, and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. One of the greatest motivational speakers in this world is a man by the name of W. Mitchell, which is somewhat ironic because when you think about a motivational speaker, you think about someone who looks healthy and someone who looks handsome. W. Mitchell is none of the above. He's none of the above simply because in 1971, while riding his motorcycle in California, that there was a laundry truck that turned in front of him and, and caused his motorcycle to slide and to burst into in flames. And it burst into flame and it ended up burning over 60% of his body and it required so many surgeries, so many skin grafts that, that they actually lost count. And that was in 1971, but wait, it gets worse. Four years later, in 1975, while he is now trying to pilot a plane at, at takeoff from a runway, somehow there's icing on the wings of the plane, and in the midst of takeoff, he crashes. And when he crashes the plane, he is the only one on the plane that suffered injuries, and he has a very traumatic injury. And is that what? He became paralyzed from the waist down. Here's this man who's been burned beyond recognition. Here's this man who's been paralyzed from the waist down. And yet today, he goes all around the world as a motivational speaker. How? 
because he says he chose to focus on not what he lost, but what he has left. And he said that in spite of all my burns and my crashes and my cuts and my seasons of painful, painful surgeries, you know what? He tells everybody and anybody, you know what? I'm not done yet. I won't quit, and I'm still here. When I read that story, I said, amen, lights and walls, because that is true. That's not just true about that motivational speaker. That should also be the montage for us as the people of God, because Mitchell's story is your story, because you two who watch me right now, you've had some people turn in your path and turn on you and left you feeling burn. You had thought you were about to take off, about on the precipice of taking off, and you end up crashing. Thought you were about to take off in your marriage. Thought you were about to take off and making some more money. Thought you were about to take off and somehow make it a better deal. And yet, you crash and burn. And in spite of all of that, you have decided, I'm not going to focus on what I lost. I'm going to focus on what I have left. And I have decided today that, you know what? I'm not done yet. Um, anybody feel that way today? If, 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 if we have 15 people online who could right now just, just go online and just, and just type that in, not done yet, not done yet. In spite of all that's happened to me, I'm not done yet. I'm still here. I'm going to be here. In spite of all the crashes, all the cuts, all the situations in my life, I'm not done yet. In spite of my age, I'm not done yet. In spite of all that I've been through, I'm not done yet. In spite of my children's spiritual condition, I'm not done yet. In spite of my debt and the very disease in my body, I am not done yet. In spite of a great, successful, solemn assembly 2021, in spite of all that, I'm still not done yet. I'm not being, not done being and doing what God left me here to do. You're not done yet. The people in this text, in this great Old Testament book, Zechariah, have not arrived into that same state of mind that you have right now. Because they have, through disappointment and discouragement, they've reached the place called done. I'm done. Anybody feel that way today? I'm just done. I've been through too much, lost too much, hurt too much, hemorrhage too much, cried too much, and I'm just done. They're done. They're giving up on God, the work of God, the will of God, the way of God. They're done. God raises up this young prophet named Zechariah to go and minister to them. Because here's how they got to done. In Ezra chapter 1, God stirs the heart of a Persian king named Cyrus to tell him to guess what? Now it's time to let my people go from Babylonian captivity. He lets them go home in chapter 2. 50,000 go back home. They're shouting, they're dancing, they're celebrating. It's like Juneteenth. They're having a great, great time. Just going home, having a wonderful time. But then after they got there, in chapter 3 of Ezra, this whole balloon of begin again, this whole balloon of a brighter, better day soon bursts. 
Because when they got there, after 70 years of captivity, there's a lot of opposition. There's a, the things are not in order. It's a difficult time. And now that we find in the text, we find from Ezra 3 to Ezra 6, for nearly 20 years, Reverend Eddie, for never 20 years, they have discontinued doing the work of God and now they put their interests, their resources, their time into doing something else. Somebody know what I'm talking about. How many years have you put your interests and resources into doing something else other than what God has told you to do? And he raises up this prophet named Zechariah. Say, Zechariah, go tell my people, we're not done yet. I got some more work for you to do. And we find in verse 1 that here is this, this, this prophet. He's been getting these visions from God ever since chapter 1. And he's gotten four visions. These visions have worn him out. And now we come to verse 1. We got a sleeping preacher. And he's asleep. And yet God has a fifth vision for him to tell him what he needs to know. And so he has to arouse him, has to awaken him, has to get up, preacher man, get up. And then he asks the question, verse 2, what do you see? And he looks and he sees what? A lampstand. A modern-day menorah is what it really is. And so he's got this light stand. Now, understand this. He's looking at this, this lampstand that is there with the bowl on top and seven lamps and seven spouts and all this lampstand. This guy's a Jew. He understands about lampstands. But if, so so what's, what's, what's the historicity of lampstand? If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 25, you'll find in Exodus 25 that God tells Moses how to construct the tabernacle. And one thing in the tabernacle is the lampstand. Jewish historians believe it's about five feet tall and about three feet wide. It's set to the left when you went inside the holy place. To the right was a table of showbread. To the left was a lampstand. And that's where it positioned itself. But the lampstand is not only in the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament. Because with the old age man, John, who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, John says in the book of Revelation, in verse 12, that in fact he heard a voice and he turned around and saw seven lampstands. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says that God has a message to the very church at Ephesus. And guess what he says? The one who has what? The one who walks and has the seven stars in his hand says to the seven lampstands. So he speaks to them. So we understand lampstands show up in the Old Testament and also show up in the New Testament. That's what lampstands are. They're in both Testaments. But here's the difference here. What's this got to do with this passage? Everything. Why? I'm glad you asked that question. Because remember, for nearly 20 years, they've been living in opposition to God. And so they've been living in such a way that God's people and their spiritual ears, their spiritual minds, and their spiritual hearts, watch this, has become accustomed to darkness. They become comfortable with being in darkness. And what God is saying, I want you to see a lampstand so when you go and preach, preach to my people about a lampstand to remind them of what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do. What is that? Be light bearers. That I'm trying to tell the church, he's trying to tell his people, we're to be people who are light bearers. That's who we are. And don't miss this about a light bearer. The purpose of a light bearer is to make sure, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that somebody else can be seen. <laughs> oh, you missed it. That's what it's for. 
that when you went into the tabernacle, the light allowed you to see the priest. When we come into the church of Jesus Christ, we as lampstands allow people to see not a priest, but the highest of the highest of the highest of the priest, and that's Jesus Christ. Our job is to shine so somebody else can see the Savior. What am I saying today? That we must be a people who must remember our role down here. You have a role to play. You have a calling down here. That's why you're still here. You have a role to play down here. Oh, my goodness. Professor was about to end this philosophy class. One guy, there's always that one guy, raised his hand and asked this thought-provoking question. Professor, what is the meaning of life? Oh, my goodness. All his classmates are frowning and they're mad because they know that a deep question like that is going to require a deep answer. And, and they don't want to stay in class not another second longer. And he asked, course, what's the meaning of life? But the professor surprised him. He surprised him because what he decided to do, reached into his wallet, pulled out a small broken mirror. He says the meaning of life. He says, this broken mirror, when I hold this broken mirror up to the light, that the light bounces off the mirror and it allows people who are watching the mirror to come out of darkness in the light. He says, what's the, what's the meaning of life? Simply this, to allow light to shine on your broken mirror so somebody else can see. Oh, I love that professor's answer because that's not just true about philosophy. That's true about us as the people of God. Our job as the people of God is to hold up our broken mirror of our lives that the light of God's Son, Jesus Christ, can bounce off of us and folks can see clearly Jesus Christ and all of his glory and all of his honor that they may see Christ. You are still here. I am still here not to buy cars, not to buy homes, not to buy red bottom shoes. There's nothing wrong with any of that. We're here to be light bearers that somebody, that everybody from everywhere and anywhere may come to see Jesus Christ because hey, there must be light in the immortal words of God in Genesis 1-3. Those four words, let there be light. There must be light. Oh my goodness, I'm trying to hurry up here. There must be light in the midst of gloom and ungodliness in this land. There must be light. In the midst of disease and darkness and decadence, there must be light. In the midst of wrong is right and right is wrong, there must be light. In the midst of tyranny and treasonous acts, there must be light. Oh, yes, there must be. And I know two things about this light. The first thing is this, light is always visible. Light is not passive. You don't hide light. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you don't hide it under a peg measure. You don't hide light. Light must always 
be visible. We can't be trip lights. We can't be secret lights. We must be bold and courageous lights. You must be halogen in your holiness that folks may see him. You must be light. And here's the second thing I know about light. You're it. I'm it. Because Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We are the light. Not the government. Not the tax collectors. We are light. Not your favorite football team or your basketball team. The church of Jesus Christ is light. It's the only light in a dark world. Well, what I'm supposed to do, preacher man, you are to shine so folks can see the Savior. He left us here to shine that folks might see the Savior. You are a lampstand for the Lord's glory. You must shine so folks can see the Savior. That is why you can't just walk out on your marriage. You ought to work on your marriage. Because why? That's shining so they could see the Savior. That is the reason why when you go to work, you ought to work when you go. Because that's shining so folks can see the Savior. That's why you got to love folks who don't love you or like you and they lie to you because that's shining so they can see the Savior. That's the reason why you must commit your body to the Lord and declare that there is no wet so there will be no bed. We ain't going to be laying up around here just having sex in the city, sex in the country, sex in the car. Oh, no, we ain't getting busy until we bypass the altar and say, I do forever. Somebody will hear me up in here because when you stop showing your light, you ruin your witness. And when you ruin your witness, folks can't get saved. God has you where he has you because you are light and you must shine your light so folks can see the Savior. On your college campus, you are light. At your retail job, you are light. At Sonic, McDonald's, Starbucks, you are light. Your job is to walk and work in such a way that folks say, why are you so strange? I ain't strange. I'm saved. Hey, and save sometimes look strange. Hey, but he wants to save a world. You say, well, preacher, ain't nobody perfect. You're right. I ain't perfect either. But he ain't called to be perfect. He called to be pointers. Point somebody to the Savior. Remember why you're here. To be light. To be light in a dark world. Obviously, Zechariah, he knew about tabernacles. He knew about lampstand. But there's something that got him in this. There's a conundrum for the preacher. Something here that he can't reconcile. Because he's got these two olive trees in verse 3. That's why he asked in verse 4, what are these? And he said, verse 5, I don't know what these are. Why? 
Because according to the Old Testament, that they had lampstands and the people had to crush olives to bring forth the oil to bring to the priest that they may feel the lampstand ready every single day. That was the order. That was the protocol of lampstand maintenance. But right here, they got two trees. A perpetual supply of energy. Nobody ever seen that before. So he's trying to figure out, wait a minute. My mom and daddy crushed grapes all their lives. And now you got this big menorah that has an everlasting fire and ain't nobody cracked an olive at any time. Because God is saying, well, let me show you something. Let me show you something. He says, this is the word that I sent to Zerubbabel in verse 6. He said, look here. Why is the rubble? Some people are probably saying, well, who in the world is the rubble? Who is people? I ain't never heard of the rubble. Well, the rubble back in the book of Haggai, you're going to find that he's the one who led the people back after captivity the first time. He's the one who brought the 50,000 back. But when they got back, the folks, the folks started complaining, being critical and complacent. Zechariah says that Haggai was someone who tried to encourage the people. He kept pulling the people back to a higher plane of living, a higher plane of life, to walking with God and serving with God and, 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 and to being better than, than, than their forefathers. But the more he pulled forward, the more the people pulled backwards. And literally, literally, that we find that this leader burned out. He simply burned out. He got tired. He got frustrated. He got exhausted. He got tuned out to the people because the people would not move, would not rise up to the greatness God has apportioned to them. God gave them a land back to go home, to live great, to live their best life. But yet they were so used to captivity. They were so used to being ostracized. They were so used to mundane, mediocre living until they wish for nothing else. And so what happens, the rubber he gets tired, Reverend He gets weak. He gets worn. And even he says, I'm just worn out. Anybody feel that way today online? You just feel like I'm just worn out. You've been trying to pull people, encourage people, cajole people, and yet nobody's moving. Nobody's listening to what you got to say, and you've exhausted your energy. And you pray until you can't pray no more. And you just, you just wore out. He was wore out. God said, Zechariah, go find my wore out leader. Go find him and tell him something. That this success will not come by human hand. He says, go tell him something. I know what he did. I know, I know he gave it his best shot. But just like no human hand supplied my lampstand, no human hand is going to supply what I have for you. He said, it is not by might and it's not by power. Oh, I can shout right there. Not by might. In other words, there's no military alliance 
not by power, no any human alliance. Nothing. It's not by brain power. It's not by brawn. It's not about who you know or when you know. It ain't about your degrees. It, 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 nothing humanly can pull off. That I'm trying to pull something off here, and nothing you know can. He said, "But how are we gonna do it?" He said, "What? But by my." Spirit, my ruah, my ruah, says the Lord. It's going to be done. All that I have wants you to rebuild your lives, rebuild your family, rebuild my temple. Only by the ruah, by the spirit of the living God. He's saying, go tell the rubber boat. You did a good job. But, 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 but I want you to know the rubber, you've gone as far as you can go. There's something I got to do. And I'm going to blow my spirit. I'm going to blow my wind. I'm going to empower you to do what you can't do. What does that mean for us, preacher man? We'll be a people who rely on what God can do and not what we can do. We must rely on what God can do and not what we can do. That's what it really means. He said, rely on what I can do. Put aside your pseudo-saviors. Put aside your human schemes. Put aside your work. You can't pull this off. It's too big for you. Rely on what I'm able to do. Oh, I read a story just last night. This young lady wanted a job, finally got a job at a textile mill. And while in the textile, she was so giddy and so excited about having a job. They sent her to orientation. She goes to orientation. You know what she was doing. She was so giddy and excited. She did not pay attention to anything in orientation. She was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. She just wanted to know, when am I getting paid? And so because she did not pay attention in orientation, she missed the big company sign hanging over the door. And the sign simply said that when your thread gets in a knot, call the foreman. And when it gets in a knot, just call the foreman. But because she didn't go to orientation, invariably her thread got into a knot. But she said, I don't want to bother the foreman. I can work this out myself. And she started working and working and working. But little did you know, all of her working was making it worse and not better. And finally, when all of her stuff was tied up in a knot, she decides to now call the foreman. And when the foreman comes, she tells the foreman, oh, Mr. Foreman, I did the best I could. I tried all I could try. I just can't do it no more. She sounds totally exasperated. I went as far as I could. I did my very best. I put forth my best effort, my very best work. I did my very, very best. And the foreman did not sympathize with her because he told her, no, you didn't. You did not do your best. He said, because if you did your best, your best would have been to call me when you got a knot and wait for me to show up. What am I saying today? I'm saying that what's true about that woman is true about us as the men and women of God. So many times we find ourselves that with our thread, we get knots in it. We get knots in our children's lives. We get knots in our income. We get knots in our communication pattern. We get knots 
and our careers. We get knots in our physical body, and we think that somehow we can work it out. We can fix it. We can work it out. And we stay there, and we mess with it, 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 and it gets worse and not better. And then we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I did the best I could with that raggedy husband. I did the best I could with that raggedy wife. I did the best I could with that raggedy child. Now, Lord, you know I did my best. And the Lord says, oh, no, you did not because you did not call me and wait for me to show up. God is saying to us today, you relied on your power and not my power. If I had 10 more minutes, I'd take you somewhere because what God is trying to say today, the problem is we're too focused on relief. And God is saying, I'm trying to give you a revelation. God is saying, you're too fixed, too fixated on your not. And I'm trying to show you some knowledge. I want to teach you through your not that there's something about me that I'm able to do because you read about it and you heard about it, but information does not equal transformation. And I'm trying to show you something. I know you got a knot in your family. I know you got a knot in your body. I know you got a knot in your life. You got a knot in your head and on your head. But God is saying anyway, I left the knot there to show you that it's not by might, and not by my spirit, but it's by my power, saith the Lord. That's what he's trying to say. I'm trying to show you how bad I am. I'm trying to show you how deep I am. I'm trying to show you how powerful I am. By the power of my Holy Ghost, we got too many Christians who live through the instrumentality of human ability. I don't want human ability. I want divine ability. I want to know what God can do in a messed up life, what God can do in a messed up home, what God can do with a messed up mind, what God can do with cocaine, what God can do with COVID, what God can do with the loss of a parent, what God can do by the power, by the power, by the power of his spirit, saith the Lord. Oh, Reverend Eddie, I'm getting ready to go. I see the barbecue crew coming right now. But I want to say a word before I go about the power of his spirit. This spirit is the same spirit in Genesis 2-7 that breathed life into Adam. He breathed life into his nostril. That's the spirit I'm talking about. It's the same spirit in Isaiah 61 when the Bible says he anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor, to those that are disenfranchised, disheartened, and proclaim the year of jubilee. That's the same spirit, the same spirit. It says that there were dry bones in Ezekiel 37, and he says, can these bones live again? Didn't look like they could, but through the power of the spirit, those dead bones, that dead nation lived again. It's the same spirit in Luke chapter 1. And the Bible says that the angel tells Mary that the Holy Ghost shall overshadow you and you shall bring forth 
God's only begotten son. It's the same spirit in Matthew chapter 4 that led Jesus to a duel with the devil in the desert. And he won that same, that same, that same spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says they were in the upper room. They were terrified and frantic. But suddenly came a silent sign of a violent Russian wind. And everybody got filled with the Holy Ghost. Oh, yes, they did. And they started speaking with new tongues, with languages that everybody could understand. It's the same Spirit that lives in you. Because the Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, greater, greater, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Ghost lives inside of you. You got power, power, power. What should we do? What should we say? Fill me. Fill me, oh God. Fill me, oh God. Fill me, oh God. Fill me, oh God. Fill me today. You've been filled with jealousy and filled with anger, filled with revenge, filled with lust. But today God wants to fill you with His holy, holy spirit of the living God. That's what He wants. Anybody want to be filled? The Bible says be filled over and over and over and over again. That's what we need. Some spirit-filled believers that will praise and worship God. Can we thank God for the spirit of the living God? Thank God for His spirit. If it had not been the spirit, there would not be the word of God. If it had not been the spirit, there'd be no resurrection on Sunday morning. It's the spirit of the living God, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord. Not by Bible knowledge, not by Bible toting, not by Bible quoting, but by the spirit of the living God. Can we give God some praise for the spirit up in hell, up in hell? Thank God, thank God, thank God. Now as I cut to my clothes, the Bible says, guess what? When you walk in the Spirit, your talk changes. How do I know? Because in verse 7, he starts touting the mountain. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? What is all that strange talk that they had been there for all these years and there was piles of rubbish and rubbles and rocks that looked a hot mess and it looked like a mountain. And they're saying, what are we going to do with this mess? And many of you got mess right now. And you're wondering what I'm going to do with this mess. God is saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. I'm going to move on your mess. And the high mountain shall become a plain. And it means that you're going to finish what I sent you to do. It won't happen today. It won't happen tonight. It probably won't happen tomorrow. But you will finish. Because the text says you're going to put the top stone on it. It's the finishing stone. It's the capstone. And for our lives, 
It's Jesus Christ because the Bible says he's an author and finisher of our faith. And the question becomes, how are we going to do it? How us going to pull it off? Pastor, how are we going to pay off this church? Pastor, how are we going to make disciples? Pastor, how are we going to strengthen families? Pastor, how are we going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? How, how, how? It's in the text. He says, grace, 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 the favor of God. Thank God, thank God, thank God for grace, grace, grace. And by God's grace, we're not done yet. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, all that's within me. Bless his name. We're not done yet. Be light. Rely on him. Return back to what he told you to do. Get back to work. There's more work to be done. More challenges, more mountains, more valleys. Oh, more mountains.